The amateur golfer. What do you see when you hear those words? Maybe Bobby Jones, a Harvard-educated lawyer completing the Grand Slam but never earning a cent in prize money. Or Francis Wimette, a kid who asked for time off work to play against and then beat seasoned professionals at the U.S. Open. At the 18th hole, with thousands in the gallery holding their breath, Francis taps his ball in for a 72. It is the shot heard round the world. No amateur had ever won the U.S. Open. Personally, I think about college golf in Vermont, riding in a van to tournaments, paying for all of our own clubs, as well as the bags that we carried them in. The scope of amateur golf is exceptionally broad, ranging from a handful of guys who competed in the Masters earlier this month to pretty much everyone else who plays golf without expecting anything tangible in return. At its core, it's golf in its purest form. It's about playing for the love of the game. Forget getting paid to play. In amateur golf, we all lose money given everything we spend on greens fees, equipment, and getting to and from the course. Or at least, that used to be how we defined amateur golf. In just over a year, a big change to the definition of amateurism is coming. In October of 2019, an NCAA announcement dropped that would have a major impact on collegiate sports. The governing body had begun working on legislation to allow athletes to profit from their name, image, and likeness, specifically as it relates to endorsing products, autograph sessions, and promotions of camps or private lessons. Though it's not enacted yet, this news was a big deal because it signaled a major shift in the mindset of the NCAA an organization that's not exactly known for its tolerance. This crew is strict, so fiercely protective of athletes not crossing the line into professionalism that in college, we had to agree in writing that we wouldn't even join a March Madness bracket with friends for fear we might make a few bucks in the process. That's how intense the rules have been about student-athletes making money on college athletics. And now, they're going to allow basketball players to make money on their jerseys being sold or get money from being in an ad, collegiate sports are changing, and that includes golf. Of course, the NCAA doesn't represent all of amateur golf, but the news seemed to open a door that had previously been closed. Two months after the NCAA's announcement, the USGA and RNA announced they were also working on modernizing the rules of amateur status. Why does this shift feel so dramatic? It's because of what amateur golf has long signified, the romantic way we still talk about the great amateurs of the past, from we met to Jones and beyond, that's in part because there was no money involved to sully the picture. Or at least, that's what we'd like to think. If you look closer, you see that the image of amateur golf has been shifting for a while now, and it's led to a new level of scrutiny into what amateurism has been, and what it should be in the modern world. I'm Keely Levins, and this is Local Knowledge where we take a deep dive into the most compelling stories in golf. This week, we're digging into the world of amateur golf and what it meant in an earlier era, what it means today, and what it will mean in the very near future. We'll talk to the USGA to get an inside look at the changes to amateur status coming in 2022, as well as players, coaches, and experts in the amateur golf space to get an understanding of what this next shift will mean for golf. We'll also talk about the other side of that line, the pro game, and how the changes there have had a ripple effect on everything else. 
To understand the amateur golf landscape and how it's changing, we first need to understand what it was. Let's start with the rules. Because at one point, being an amateur golfer meant following strict guidelines. Ryan Harrington, the managing editor of GolfDigest.com, has covered amateur golf for more than two decades. In in the original days, uh, you could not do anything connected to business and golf. You could have no connections. So, for instance, caddies couldn't be, uh, were were considered professional golfers. They couldn't be amateurs uh, after a certain age. And even some of the most storied amateurs in golf wound up having issues with perhaps uh, crossing that line about whether they had any intent of being uh, professionals or amateurs. Francis Wimet, maybe the most famous amateur golfer of all time from the standpoint of that 1913 US Open win. And then just a few years later was declared a pro because he had uh, a connection with a sporting goods store. And you know, at one point, um, anyone engaged in any business concern with golf was considered a professional. Unlike Wimet, who eventually turned pro, It's Bobby Jones who remains the embodiment of the noble career amateur. But bear in mind, for Jones back then, it probably wasn't that difficult of a decision. Amateurs were held in higher regard back then. And as far as paychecks are concerned, Jones probably knew he'd have a better chance of making a living as a lawyer than a golfer anyway. Eventually, though, that began to change. 1920s, 1930s, when professional golf started to have uh, a little bit more clout, you know, you, you hear about uh, Walter Hagen and how he kind of changed the image of professional golf and tried to help it become a, a more popular thing because they were definitely looked down upon. Professional golfers were looked down upon. Amateur golfers were considered the elite of the game. And that kind of shifted at, at that point in time. And then I think in the 50s and the 60s, again, when, when the tour had to become a little bit more prominent and, um, and whatnot, you saw professional golfers uh, or more people decided to try professional golf and give it a shot. I mean, even Arnold Palmer at one point said that he was going to remain a career amateur and he decided to go ahead and, uh, and turn pro Jack Nicholas said that he would never turn pro at one point in his amateur career. And he decided to turn pro. So the lore of professional golf uh, in, in the forties, fifties became too much at that point in time. And now obviously it's just increased even that much more. Could you imagine a world where amateur golf was more prestigious than professional golf to the point that players of Palmer or Nicholas's level never even turned pro? More than a century removed from Wimet's storybook U.S. Open win as a 20-year-old amateur, it seems ridiculous now. But for many golfers of an earlier era, the game was free of the distractions and trappings of prize money and endorsements. You played for the satisfaction of figuring it out for the honor of winning tournaments. But I mean, it is amazing if you think about it, like Bobby Jones and the iconic nature that he has in not only golf, but in sports. And he was an amateur. I mean, this is a guy who technically didn't take any money. You know, now obviously, uh, you know, to a certain extent, it, it's a different era and things are different. But I mean, it, it if you didn't appreciate what, amateur golf and the status it had at one point was, just look at that. The U.S. Open Championship trophy presented by Lexus is once again hitting the road, traveling across the country to some of the U.S. Open's most historic courses. The USGA teamed up with golf nomad Matt Cardis, the guy who runs Golf in Your State on Instagram, to document the trophy's travels from Wingfoot to Torrey Pines. Although it's bittersweet that the trophy won't be visiting an event near you, you have the opportunity to enter for a chance to win a round at one of the eight courses Matt will be visiting.
The courses are Wingfoot, Oakmont, Pinehurst, Aaron Hills, Cherry Hills, Olympic, Pebble, and Torrey. There's no purchase necessary. Just enter at www.usopentrophytoursweeps.com. The sweepstakes is happening now, and it'll end on December 17th. It's open to legal residents of the U.S. and D.C. who are at least 18 years old. If at one point an amateur golfer couldn't work as a caddy or in a sporting goods store, it's fair to say the rules have relaxed quite a bit over the years. It's still not pro golf, but it's not nearly as strict as we knew either. Currently, under USGA and RNA rules, amateur golfers can accept free equipment from manufacturers. They can accept prizes in the form of gift certificates up to $750. They can have reasonable expenses covered to help them play in golf competitions, something necessary with the scope of travel required for amateur golf tournaments now. They can accept scholarships to play golf in college. They can even turn pro only to become an amateur again by getting their status reinstated, which is a whole other conversation. (laughs) All of this has contributed to making amateur golf, frankly, more of a business. Amateur golf championships are televised. Collegiate teams fly around on private jets. Even at the junior level, there are competitions like the drive, chip, and putt, where an eight-year-old can make it all the way to the finals at Augusta National and be showcased on Golf Channel. What's really changed amateurism in my mind is the fact that professional golf is such a lucrative business right now. It is, it, we had folks who decided to remain career amateurs in the 1950s, 1960s, uh, and before, because frankly, they could make more money as in, in everyday life than being a professional golfer. Being a professional golfer was not a lucrative job for, for a long, long time. And so the reason things have changed so much now is, is frankly, you can make a lot of money as a, a professional golfer. And so the idea of trying to stick around and just be an amateur, uh, you know, that, that, that's just an anachronistic uh, idea right now. So we know that pro golf is too good for many players to pass up. But that's not just because of the opportunities that are available to you when you turn pro. It's also because of the limits you face if you don't turn pro. And this current issue, whether an athlete should be allowed to profit off their name, image, and likeness, it helps address at least one potentially key incentive to remain an amateur. The conversation started in earnest in 2014, when a former UCLA basketball player and NCAA champ, Ed O'Bannon, won his suit against the NCAA. Whether you're one of those big schools or whether you're a smaller school, Everyone is getting paid, whether it's the coaches, the athletic directors, the trainers, doctors, every, everyone on campus is getting paid off of that money that, you, that the, the athlete is bringing in, but the, but the athletes themselves. O'Bannon had started his case after seeing a friend's kid playing a video game that featured a player who was undoubtedly him. Yet, he didn't receive any money from being a character in the video game. And a judge ruled that by not allowing student-athletes to profit from their likeness, antitrust laws were being violated. After the ruling in 2014, EA Sports stopped selling video games that included collegiate players. And the NCAA began allowing schools to cover the entire cost of a scholarship athlete's expenses. Which meant that beyond tuition being covered, scholarship athletes were eligible for a stipend to cover costs outside of tuition like rent or food. This was a big change for the NCAA, and it was the beginning of the larger conversation that's happening now. 
Collegiate stars like O'Bannon could obviously have a lot to gain from name, image, and likeness, whether it's jerseys being sold, endorsement deals, or being able to host camps. The greater the level of stardom of the athlete, the more they have to gain. Maybe collegiate golfers stop short of the level of Zion Williamson, but collegiate golfers have become stars too. Conrad Ray, who's in his 17th season coaching the Stanford men's golf team, thinks the change will be a good one for his team. I think it's I think it's a pretty big deal actually in golf. I think um, you know you think about an individual sport that really profiles personalities and um, you know the the fans glom onto uh, individuals, right? And you look at kind of how many people are watching Bryson DeChambeau these days, or um, uh, you know Tiger Woods for that matter. Um, you know that so you think about um, that with the the trend that I think college golf is on the rise. I think that the top players in college and amateur golf are um, being more profiled or more highly profiled. And I think that it's going to be a pretty big deal. The history of the NCAA is littered with examples of high profile athletes accepting money and being punished as a result. So the thought of college athletes being compensated is a pretty radical one. But to Coach Ray, it makes sense especially when you consider the level of stardom that some athletes reach. And for what it's worth, Ray played at Stanford alongside Tiger Woods, clearly the best example of a golfer who left amateur golf behind because the money in pro golf was just too good. I'm excited to the extent that I'm happy for our guys. I haven't been a student athlete myself and, you know, knowing that, um, you know, I'm a sports fan, it's not just in golf, uh, but, you know, if if you sell, you know, if you rewind and they're selling Tiger Woods golf bags in the in the library at Stanford, they probably would have sold a lot of them, you know, and, and if the, if his name is on them, you know, to me, I think that he probably deserves a piece of that pie. While the NCAA's focus is on name, image and likeness, with their timeline being the fall of 2021 to submit legislative proposals, the USGA and RNA say they're looking at the same issue along with other aspects of the rules around amateur status. If the NCAA had Ed O'Bannon to thank for forcing the conversation on name, image, and likeness, golf had its own example, Lucy Lee. In 2014, 11-year-old Lucy Lee became the youngest golfer to qualify for the U.S. Women's Open. Five years later, she appeared in a commercial for Apple Watch, which was a problem because she was still an amateur. The 16-year-old was shown swinging a golf club in the ad, And I remember the immediate reaction in our office. Yikes, this kid is going to lose her amateur status. But she didn't. There were a few things that worked in her favor. One being that she didn't take any money from Apple. And she had previously worked as a model when she was a young child. Though her appearing as a golfer in an ad was a breach of the rules, the USGA spared her amateur status. Thomas Pagel is the Senior Managing Director of Governance at the USGA. We'd, we'd already started the process of, of looking uh, around the time that uh, Lucy Lee appeared in the Apple Watch commercial. And we'd seen some others, right? And it, it just shows the, the, the sort of gray lines that you have to navigate with the rules of amateur status. Because if somebody, if they're, they're a model by profession, um, but they happen to be a good golfer, all of a sudden you say, well, okay, you, you can appear, but just don't appear swinging a golf club. And then if you appear swinging a golf club, then all of a sudden we've, we've crossed the line. And so when Lucy did it, um, you know, she went in all well-intentioned uh, and there was there were not uh, dollars that exchanged hands. She just did it to be in an Apple Watch commercial and it created a lot of uh, issues. 
The fact that the existence of a gray area allowed Lee to keep her amateur status was not lost on someone like Harrington who follows amateur golf. In recent history, there wouldn't have been a gray area for Lee's situation to fall into. Not many years ago, this situation would have been black and white. I believe that the environment with which the Lucy Lee situation happened in 2019 is such that she was allowed to get this warning and get away. And, and you know, the irony, of course, is that she's turned pro now, if you will, and, and so she's a professional. But at the same time, if this happened 10 years before, she would have lost her amateur status. I genuinely believe that because I think uh, there would have been too many people who haven't changed their opinions on this subject and would have said, I don't care if she didn't really understand the rules. She broke them, you know, and, and the rules are the rules. And uh, I'm sorry, I know you're 16, but you know what, you can't do this. The Lee situation was just one moment of many that has shown that the world of amateur golf is different than the world the current rules of amateur status were written for. Though Lee's issue rose to the big stage of a TV commercial, there are many examples that pop up via social media. There are things uh, that, you know, from my perspective, are broken with the current code. And, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about name, image, and likeness, but that as it relates to social media, I mean, that really challenges the rules of amateur status. Here you have kids, for example, that are, are receiving equipment, which they're allowed to do under the rules of amateur status. And they post something on Twitter saying, hey, thanks, manufacturer X, go team X, right? And that technically is a breach of the rules of amateur status. That's the modern day thank you note for these kids, right? So we need to revise the rules to, to better reflect that and, and just better reflect how the game is being played. These Instagram infractions are a real concern, to the point that Coach Ray says he has to hound his players on social media just to make sure they don't inadvertently do something to jeopardize their NCAA or USGA status. You know, the guys joke because I kind of, I don't do it in a weird way, but I'm following all of them on social media, you know, and they're like, oh, you know, they're calling me this, this stalker coach, you know, um, but uh, you know, it's, it is, it's, it's important, right? And, and, you know, you never would want to, if you're smart and you have aspirations to play pro golf, it actually behooves you to be really keen about the, the rules around, you know, uh, any sort of endorsements and social media and kind of, you know, uh, doing all those things. The way it works right now, if you're an amateur golfer who does something like what Pagel referenced, thanking an equipment company for gear they sent you via an Instagram post, for instance, it's considered a technical breach. We see it quite often and we call them technical breaches. Um, and it's something that we have, we, we let the individual know, we make them aware um, uh, of the issue, but then tell them we're not going to apply the rules in their case. Um, but, you know, that I said, it's not just limited to juniors. I mean, you'll see um, somebody, you'll, you'll see, you know, Mid-Am that owns their own business. And maybe they uh, mention their, their golf abilities in some advertisement to promote their insurance business. That also is a breach of the rules of amateur status. And they're like, well, but I'm on the golf course. I can let people know that I'm an insurance agent and I've played in the U.S. Mid-Am and maybe had success, but I can't put it in writing somewhere. And so it's we have to, again, tell them it's a technical breach, ask them to stop doing it, um, and no penalties applied. So it's just an area of the rules that gets really challenged. So generally, these technical breaches end up being a slap on the wrist. If you keep it up, however, and continue to make technical breaches, you're going to lose your amateur status. Then you can't compete in amateur championships. And if you want to get your amateur status back, you have to fill out an application, explain your breach, send that to your local golf association, as well as the USGA, 
and then wait to hear how long your period of reinstatement will be. Pagel says the standard is a year or two. It's the same process professionals go through when they want to be reinstated as an amateur. If you're going to gamble on golf, you may as well do it right. And for any golf fan who's curious about betting on golf but hasn't gotten serious about it, we have the podcast for you. Be Right is Golf Digest's weekly gambling podcast featuring the latest PGA Tour intel and picks from an expert panel that is up nearly 300 units this season. That's a gambling term, by the way. With thoughts from some of fantasy sports' brightest minds and even an anonymous tour caddy at our side, we've done our best to turn betting on golf into a science to help you make money off golf. While we can't promise that you'll come out ahead every week, we can guarantee you'll be well-informed and entertained along the way. So stop doing golf wagers wrong and join us on Be Right. As Pagel and his team work on their definition of amateurism, they're keeping track of what the NCAA is doing to make sure that the governing bodies are aligned as well as possible during these changes. If they aren't, we could end up in a situation where the USGA and the RNA have one set of rules while the NCAA has another. That would make it complicated for a golfer who wants to play in both NCAA and USGA championships. As we entered this project, you know, we always remind ourselves, let's look at, let, let's make sure we understand what's broken, right? Like, let's not go in and blow this up just for the sake of blowing up. What do we really need to fix? And name, image, and likeness has the biggest bullseye on it um, um, from my perspective. And so it's something that has to change. It's just a matter of how it changes and ultimately where we end up. So you have a lot of bodies that are all looking at the same issues and all trying to figure out how to resolve the issue in many cases, independent of one another. So it's, it's a bit sloppy right now. My hope would be that those bodies, whether it be uh, the, the states uh, or, 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 you know, the, the federal government or the NCAA, they can just come together so that at least there's consistency throughout. So why does it matter that the governing bodies are aligned when it comes to amateurism? Because if they're not, it's going to get complicated really quickly. We already see it happening now. As an amateur golfer, you can accept clubs from an equipment company. But as a collegiate golfer, you can't directly accept golf clubs from an equipment company. You have to get them actually literally through your school. So you have to sign paperwork to be able to say, I'm accepting these golf clubs. And technically, the school owns them. You don't own them. I mean, the minutia of that is crazy. It's something former college star and current LPGA Tour player Maria Fossey had to deal with during her time at Arkansas. I know, for example, for me as a junior golfer, I had a deal with Tylist at a time and then with TaylorMade to where they would send me golf balls and golf bags and equipment and stuff. But it was always uh, equipment. It was never money. It was never any perks or anything. It was just uh, equipment, right? And then I get to college, and because of NCAA rules, that couldn't be a thing anymore. Fossey's experience provides insight into another thorny area in amateur golf. Players from other countries coming to the States to play collegiate golf are coming from programs where the level of support given to junior golfers is very different from that which American junior golfers receive. There isn't a government-funded golf federation in the States, but many other countries have them. With golf being added to the Olympics, that number has only increased. It's really fascinating to me how, uh, you know, uh, international federations can have a hand in the amateur game. Um, and by de facto, the college programs in the U.S. become kind of those international teams uh, or federation support. Um, but I look at some of the guys that have played for our program and what the international federations have been able to do for them in terms of like financial support, even beyond 
college golf. And um, it's quite striking, the Spanish Federation or the English Federation or, um, you know, the, 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 the Danish Federation, you know, there are all these European federations that are really funneling a lot of resources and money to kids to play golf at a high level. So that's interesting to me in terms of uh, amateurism and how you define that. This isn't only an important point to bring up when talking about what the definition of amateur status should be. It's a good reminder of who amateurs are right now. Though amateurs aren't getting paid, they're being supported in ways that the Bobby Jones of amateur golf never could have imagined. They're getting coaching, housing, education, flights to tournaments in different countries. They function more like mini pros. And when looking at who exactly these amateurs are right now and what the amateur game has become, it's pushed the USGA to consider changing the definition of amateur status beyond just name, image, and likeness. For instance, here's another new situation. Amateur and club tournaments have long given out gift certificates or pro shop credit as prizes. So players pop into a pro shop after a tournament, get a shirt, sweater, sleeve of balls, whatever. But now... Those gift certificates are occasionally Visa gift cards, which can basically be used anywhere. And if that's happening, Pagel asks, why can't players just be given cash? Again, you talk about areas of the rules that are challenged that we really need to think through. And we're asking ourselves right now is, is we still believe a limit's important, but uh, why can't somebody accept cash? And so, again, who knows if it'll change or not, but th that's the type of thing that we're thinking through. It's surprising to hear the idea of an amateur being able to take cash from playing in a tournament, because that seems to be the most steadfast difference between amateurs and professionals. Pros play for a purse, amateurs don't. But if you think about it in the way Pagel talks about it, is taking cash really any different than taking a Visa gift card, which amateurs are already doing now? And is competing for a $750 winner's prize really considered a purse? As a frame of reference, Dustin Johnson just walked away from Augusta with $2 million. As the USGA and RNA tackle the challenges to amateur status, they're in the unenviable position of having to balance the history of the past with the current realities of Instagram-famous amateur golfers. It's that history and amateur golf's functioning as a self-regulating entity that has led Pagel and his team to a series of existential questions. Back in 2012, when we first unified the code with the RNA, we did ask ourselves, should there even be rules of amateur status? Can, can the game just live as open golf, right? So every event you play in, doesn't matter if you're a professional amateur, doesn't matter if you're giving instruction, doesn't matter if you're taking cash, just go play golf. Uh, and that sounds interesting on a lot of levels, but First of all, it brings in challenges and pressures to the game. It brings in the potential for manipulation in a self-regulated game, like all the things we want to protect against. But more importantly, it would just completely dismiss and do away with all the history, right? I mean, it's it's the amateur championships that have meant so much uh, to the game. You know, the individuals that have made conscious decisions to pursue careers outside of golf, but have still provided so much to the game. Uh, we, we can't lose that. We should never lose that. There's another thing we lose as money trickles into amateur golf. The spirit of the game changes. Listen to Fossey. She's someone who likely could have profited off of her likeness following her second place finish in the Augusta National Women's Amateur. She even appeared on The Tonight Show in the tournament's aftermath. You'd think she'd be someone in favor of the change, but she sees the downside. 
I just think that kids getting paid just to show up to a tournament or kids getting paid because the school wants to use uh, a picture of them for X, Y, or Z. Uh, I I don't love the idea of that just because, again, I think it, it starts to become, uh, in my opinion, a little more hostile and like the, the environment's not the same. Uh, the team chemistry, I think it's it could be a very um, hard situation to to control where you have the number one player on the team who's getting paid and then everybody else doesn't get paid, even though they're also part of the team and they're also part of the team success. So I think it's it's very hard, in my opinion, to, to make it work and to make it still be a safe environment for um, the athletes and the coaches. Allowing amateur athletes to get money for their athletic ability is going to change collegiate sports, no doubt about it. But the concerns Fossey has, including concerns for what it would mean for the team dynamic if a star is making a lot more than the number six player, could prove to be real points of contention on a team. When players turn pro out of college, that's often the first thing they say they miss, the camaraderie of a team. College golf loses something big if it loses that. I think we should try to hold on to kids and, and people playing the sport for the love for the sport rather than uh, having them love the sport because they have uh, another incentive, uh, which in this case would be money. So what's the right answer? Well, if we've learned anything by now, it's that it's really complicated. On one side, you have the reality of what amateur golf has become, which is what Pagel and his team are dealing with. Couple that with the feeling, and likely soon to be legislation, that it only seems right that if something's being sold with your name on it, you should get a piece of that profit. Then on the other side, you have that little twinge of dread that Fosse feels. That bringing money into amateur sports could compromise the pure spirit of amateur golf that the game was built on. And if we do that, is it going to be worth it? Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. Our music is Barney Be Good Tonight by Lobo Loco. You can subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts, and we welcome a review as well. Also, for expert picks, betting advice, and insights into the action on the PGA Tour, please also make sure to subscribe to our Be Right podcast.